Welcome to Liberty Southwest podcast number 64. On this one, we have Lydia Tabbitt and myself, Eric Taylor. It's been a little while since we've had a podcast. Um, since early March, uh, when COVID started, it was around that time period. And at that, I think at that point in time, we thought we were getting kind of back into a groove of sorts, but that hasn't been the case. Um, so we may or may not uh, get into a regular routine uh, as it's been over the last couple of years. We've, very, we've done these pretty sporadically. Um, but I thought it would be interesting to go over uh, some of the topics that we talked about on that podcast. And, and the most interesting of which, which I didn't think too much about actually when we were discussing it, uh, was covid and uh, Lydia Kirk had some, and he was planning on being on this podcast. He's had some other things come up, but he had some interesting thoughts. You remember some of the, some of the, uh, what I consider to be maybe uh, fringe ideas that he had back in March. Um. Well, yeah. I mean, the, I, the one that stands out first and foremost in my mind was, the um, sort of ultimate ultimate goal of the artificially created COVID, which is to microchip the heck out of everyone. That was my takeaway from from first, uh, COVID predictions, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and- yeah, what stood out, stood out most to, to myself. Um, and just generally, I think Kirk's perspective was that COVID was a vehicle for um, implementing long-lasting and intrusive, um, I don't know, uh, long-lasting and intrusive uh, new roles for government and intervention of government in various ways. Was that kind of your assessment as well? That was yeah. kind of yeah. my it, general. Yeah, and, it, and some of it, you know, some, even kind of when you, think about the microchipping and that type of thing. It's not with it's not outside of the realm of possibility, right? Um, we've, and I had this kind of feeling and I think another thing that Kirk mentioned back then was um, you know how this seemed to be uh, maybe Chinese related in some way not, like more more so than just oh, yeah. you know just coming from Wuhan um but you know more of a you know more of a and i i i generally agreed with him on on that more of a um almost a geopolitical uh type of endeavor mm-hmm. uh, on on the part of the chinese uh to assert um global control you know uh, 
somewhat of a totalitarian state. And, you know, there, there are, um, certainly there, there are, and, you know, probably always will be jockeying at, you know, a high level for, uh, global control. And there certainly is, I mean, I think that's happening to us to a large degree. And it, since then that has made a lot of sense to me that, you know, back in March, I, I was thinking, well, what this feels like to me is potentially a bioengineered type of virus um, that, you know, there, there was some, even the CDC and uh, there, there, there are some folks that at that point in time basically said not to be too alarmed. I mean, you can pull up clips by uh, Dr. Fauci where he said, don't be too concerned about wearing a mask. Um, there, there just wasn't that much concern in general about the situation, right? Mm-hmm. And um, um, yeah, that was I think most people's perspective six, a little over six months ago. Yeah. I mean, what did you think of this? You know, beginning of March. Because I was really dismissive mm-hmm. um, when Kirk brought this, you know, brought up it could be a significant, you know, situation. My attitude was, um, yeah, it's not a big deal. It'll be done, you know, within a couple of weeks or a month, um, and and uh, and that was it in my mind. What what were your thoughts back then? Mm-hmm. I had kind of a similar perspective. I mean, I think. I think everyone, regardless of where, you know, I think virtually everyone, you know, this was sort of an unprecedented concept, you know, no one's experienced anything like this. Like I, I, you know, I remember, I remember like packing up my, my office to bring things home and things like that. And I think there was just this sort of general, uh, novelty or, um, you know, lack of knowing what to do in terms of like, how long is this going to be? Or what, what is, you know, what is this, you know? But I think I, my, my perspective was very similar to yours in that it would be uh, measured in, in weeks and not months. And here we are six months later and, you know, there's, it's, you know, in my mind, I think, you know, to a, to a large degree, our initial thoughts on Corona and COVID, as far as I've been able to discern it, were pretty accurate that, you know, for, you know, for the most part, it, you know, would pass, would not impact that much, that many people, but the safety precautions and the politics and, you know, the unknown um, nature of the virus. And I, and I, you know, obviously neither one of us are medical experts, but there are new viruses that come up all the time. Right. And things mutate Mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, Corona and COVID, uh, from what I've read and listened to and watched are, you know, the coronavirus is a, a pretty common virus. The common cold is a coronavirus. Um, and, uh, there has never been a vaccine successfully developed for the common cold. Uh, they mutate and, uh, you know, 
uh, people generally get over it. Uh, and, you know, influenza, you know, mo the most susceptible populations uh, can succumb to it. And it seems, you know, as much as, as I can tell, it's about the same, you know, the, the same more uh, death rate associated with the flu or COVID. Um, you see some, you know, sensationalized um, news stories on COVID and, and, uh, uh, and I don't know if you can, you know, think of any, I, I, I haven't really seen any video or pictures of people who have been healthy, um, who've had, you know, catastrophic struggles with, with the virus. Have, have you seen any of these stories? And I've kind of asked people about this and I really just haven't heard, you know, a lot of examples of that happening or taking place. Um, in terms of photo or video, no. I saw something recently, um, some sort of anecdote of someone, I don't remember exactly where it was, but someone had a, I think it was, uh, it might have been like a soccer friend of mine that, from the UK, but it was someone in Great Britain. Um, they They had known someone or something that was a, you know, lifelong marathon runner or something, and they had contracted COVID and, you know, now we're struggling just to go up and down stairs. And I don't know if that was a, you know, a consequence of lung function or heart function or maybe not even COVID related whatsoever. Um, but that's been kind of the most, I don't know, uh, substantial uh, effects on a healthy person, if you will, that I've heard of. Yeah. And that's kind of, other than someone who's, you know, relatively famous, that's the it's one of the only uh, stories I've heard. Like I've heard, you know, you know, people, you know, famous basketball players, for example, Russell Westbrook, Kevin Durant, uh, they got COVID, they recovered fine. Rand Paul, Thomas Massey, they got COVID. They said, well, Thomas Massey said he he got COVID in January, most likely, and he didn't even know that he had COVID until he was tested tested for antibodies, and he had a huge amount of antibodies, and his wife did too. So they're they're giving uh, antibodies. Um, plasma. Uh, yep. Mm -hmm. uh, plasma. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. For plasma, mm -hmm. but so that's the that's kind of I guess my general thought process. What I'm going through is. Um, outside and i and i really haven't even i mean you see the numbers and there have been stories you know i'm sure you've probably read the and some people said it was over sensationalized where 9600 deaths have been purely covid related in the united states and others have had some type of comorbid comorbid let me see if i see if i can say that correctly they've been comorbid with with you know some other uh, pre-existing mm -hmm. condition. Um, and you mm -hmm. know, some said that, you know, that it was debunked after, but that story seemed to make sense. Cause you just don't, um, you don't see or hear a lot of normal people kicking the bucket or having a hard time with it. I had a coworker, uh, mm -hmm. he's 39. Uh, he, um, developed COVID and this was back in March uh, on an adjacent team. Um, pretty good shape. 
he said it was really difficult for about a week um, to go through it. It was like a heavy, you know, kind of a heavy case of the flu is what it felt like to him. And he ended up losing mm-hmm. some weight. Um, but he's fine now and he's back at work. And, you know, some of the things that that you hear about is even if you're young and you're healthy and you you get COVID that you could have some type of, you know, lingering effect. Like, uh, mm-hmm. for example, your lungs could be, uh, the lung capacity or the performance of lungs could be diminished. Like I've read stories that it, if you have COVID, it's, it's, it can be as bad as smoking two packs of cigarettes for 25 years on your lungs after you go through it. Um, but, I, you know, in talking, mm-hmm. you know, talking with uh my coworker he's able he's he's fine he's moving around functioning and you see athletes that they're fine and you and you you know so you you see kind of this fear or propaganda that's generated around covid world where we don't know everything you know that's that could happen because of it you know you could have mm-hmm. right. some type of effect in the future that you don't know um but to me it just doesn't, it doesn't smell right. I, I've never, I mean, I've, my gut has been like, you know, this seems like propaganda rather than fact. If you're saying could, should, but you have no, you know, you have no mm-hmm. statistical data to back it up, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I generally agree with that as well. Um, I mean, the, the biggest thing for me, I think, in terms of, how it's been handed, handled, I guess, specifically in the political sphere, sphere. And the thing that frustrates me most is just the, um, you know, arbitrary policies, right? Like, like to me, you know, it should be, you know, a, a lot of things, right, are, are sort of, I think, you know, multifaceted or nuanced or sort of, you know, areas of gray. But it should be, I think, to some degree, clear sort of what, activities are, are, you know, if this is really a, a threat or really a problem, you know, what activities are safe or unsafe, you know, should be relatively clear. But, and, and the implementation of policy, you know, has been very arbitrary. And I think, you know, to me, that, that smells of, you know, this is more role in a lot of ways than it is about, um, you know, a substantial risk. Yeah, and there's, I mean, you can you can look at so many different uh, examples of that. Um, you know, going through you know sm- the loans that went out to small businesses. Some businesses, you know, I've read examples of you know, for example, some hairstylist shop uh, may have gotten a SBA loan. Another one didn't had to go out of business. You have some businesses that that got mm-hmm. SBA loans or restaurants, and they were able to continue to operate. Others didn't, so they had to close. And um, you have uh, uh, kind of almost fiscal malfeasance uh, in, through unemployment insurance and um, stimulus checks uh, that have provided somewhat of a hammock rather than safety net for a lot of people who aren't incentivized. And this is something that Kirk and I were talking about a while, probably a month or two ago. Um, 
aren't incentivized to get any job because they make more money on unemployment insurance than they would working. And those are, you know, yeah, that was my experience firsthand. How so? Um, yeah, Uh, I was, our, uh, my employer was, uh, we were received a, a, um, PPP loan and our entire staff was unemployed for three weeks in April. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, uh, checks I received from unemployment were, were certainly larger than my normal paycheck. Right. So what did you think? And about that was the, what pr- did you primarily think because that? of the su- supplement from the federal government. Yeah. I'm sorry. What, what was that? Sorry. I, I kind of cut you off, but what, what did you, what did you think about that when you kind of you know, received that? And did you think it was legitimate or what were your thoughts? Well, I think anyone with a brain would think that this is not a long-term source of income, right? Mm-hmm. So you save as much as you can and keep your you know, expenses as limited as you can and, and hope for the best that you're able to return to your previous employment and carry on there. That was mm-hmm. sort of my perspective. Yeah. Yeah, so it's... Um, but the other thing... Sorry. I was, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, the, the other thing I was going to say is just, you know, and this was uh, when I kind of say things were arbitrary. It's just that the the information we were receiving from um, public officials, politicians, medical uh, uh, experts, et cetera, um, you know, the policies so often were conflicting with that information. Um, the thing that the thing that stood out for me and, you know, I felt like people thought I was crazy for being worked up about this, but I just thought it was so stupid was, you know, in, I think this was like around April, um, at least in Michigan, um, Gretchen Whitmer had implemented a policy that um, only certain aisles in, you know, big box stores could be open. Um, So, um, you know, I remember shopping at Walmart and thinking to myself, you know, if we're supposed to be social distancing or keeping so, uh, you know, as much space between ourselves and others as possible, you know, not being able to leave my shopping cart in the, um, you know, in the furniture aisle, you know, while I go get groceries or, you know, have, you know, constricting the space in the store um, seems antithetical to that goal. Um, and, and another one that um, I was talking to friends with over the summer that um, don't live in Michigan, but they had had uh, mentioned that um, they thought was also equally arbitrary was this idea that, um, at least in Michigan, they were allowing um, people that lived out of state, if they had like vacation properties or things like that in Michigan, they were able to travel to those properties. Um, but if you were a Michigan resident, um, at least during like the kind of most intense months of, of quarantining, you were not able to travel from your residence to your vacation property. Um, again, just a, a really arbitrary and dumb, dumb thing, um, at least I thought in terms of... Um, you know, things that really didn't make any sense or, you know, I don't know. Those were two that particularly stood out to me. What was behind the cabin situation? Did you ever find a, any explanation? Uh, no, I haven't heard any. I mean, to be honest with you, I haven't really followed up on it that closely mm-hmm. or anything. But um, I, I think the idea, I don't know. I think the idea was like, 
you know, if we let people go to their vacation homes, then they can go to other people's vacation homes and then they can go to other people's homes. And, and then this whole thing is for not or something that would, I don't know, that'd be my guess. Right. But that doesn't make sense when you apply that to people coming in from out of state. Right. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But then probably, and I'm not a, I'm not a law person, but mm-hmm. I would think there's probably some degree of like, you know, interstate travel laws that, you know, you would potentially be violating in that case. Maybe, I don't know. Like, you know, if you were to say like people from out of state cannot enter the state or go to their properties that they own within this state, I don't know. Most countries have done that to the United States though. If you can't go to. Right. Right. You, I'm you saying, can't go to most I'm countries now like, if you're a U.S. citizen. In the United States. Yeah. Because you can't go to Canada. I don't know. I think they did Mexico. No, although it, I was pretty damn, I was pretty damn close last weekend. I was standing on the uh, St. Clair river last weekend, um, overlooking the Canadian border, just a few, a uh, few, I don't even know if you'd say miles, probably a few thousand feet away. If you wanted to, could you get over that relatively easy or, or no? Uh, it would be a challenge. It would be a challenging swim, but you yeah. could definitely boat it. Um, I would think. Yeah. Cause there was an, an Alaska exemption that was abused. And I think it was closed within the last month where you couldn't go into Canada, but if you're going to Alaska, you could drive through Canada. And so people were going to all kinds of mm-hmm. places and saying they're going to can or they're going to Alaska. They drive up, you know, wherever. Mm-hmm. And, and they've tightened the screws on, on that, you know, basically said, if you're, if you're doing this, you're going to, or if you're stating that you're using the Alaska exemption and you're not going to Alaska, you're going to jail and you're getting fined a significant amount of money. Um, so yeah, that would be, it'd be interesting to kind of know the logic behind the, uh, cabin situation. But I mean, there've been so many in Michigan, there've been so many, you know, so many things that have happened, um, over the last six months that just seem incongruent. They, they don't seem to be based mm-hmm. in, on a, you know, on a level playing field, you know, for example, um, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of lower income workers who have lost their jobs and they aren't going to get them back. And there's a lot of stimulus money going into the economy and a lot of the money is going into certain business segments. And as a result, you have a stock market that's at all time highs and the ultra wealthy have seen their wealth grow incredibly over the last six months. Um, and a lot of it has to do with stimulating the economy, um, which just is creating just, just large asset bubbles. Um, so there's, you know, there's, there are those components. And then of course, um, you can see this and, you know, the dichotomy of how people view. And I think you and I have talked about this, um, the dichotomy of how people view COVID. If you're a progressive living in an urban area, you, it seems like most just buy what they're told hook, line and sinker. 
and they're a fervent believer in all the protocols that have been given by the state and federal, actually, actually it's state governments. It's really to a lesser extent, the federal government, they've allowed the states to lead to a large extent. Um, and mm -hmm. if you get into more rural areas, you, you, you don't see any of that. Um, and there's, so it's created like this polarizing political divide. Uh, and I'm sure, I mean, mm -hmm. everybody has seen, seen that right over the, I mean, it seems like it's, um, it's just gotten to be more of a thing over the last three or four months. Yeah. And I, and I think, I think that's a, you know, I think it's just an acceleration of an even, you know, bigger trend of people living in, um, both online and in-person bubbles in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. You know, I think, um, uh, uh, more and more people are living in communities and, um, in networks of people that are pretty homogenous. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, that certainly is not helpful for, um, I don't know, discussion or, uh, ideas or, you know, uh, challenging ideas or, um, you know, having healthy conversation. I, I think. Yeah. And that's, and I think that's a really excellent point is the healthy conversation. You don't really, you know, you don't see people sitting down and saying, well, this is why I feel this way, or this is why I feel this way. And really getting, you know, to, to an understanding, um, you see, you know, a lot of, mm -hmm. you know, a lot saying, well, this is how you should be, or this is how I'm going to be. Um, and, you know, it seems like many either buy, uh, what, um, the more progressive, I mean, to me, it's delineated politically. Wouldn't you, I mean, you think that's, Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. hundred yep. percent. Yep. Yeah. I mean, if you're a progressive, um, you're, mask, you know, mask up, throw on your sanitizer, social distance. Um, you know, we're going to beat this virus, you know, anyway, you know, any way we can. And, mm -hmm. uh, if you're more of the conservative and I think most libertarians would fall into that, but they don't bind to, you know, some of the other stuff, it's, it's more of looking at the situation with a wary eye saying, well, you know, a lot of people, a lot of them are like, we, we did the lockdown for the first month and a half looking for some results and not a lot's changed. You know, not mm -hmm. a lot of people that I know have been affected by this. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, so we have, you know, th those concerned on the right thinking, you know, basically dismissing masks, uh, and, mm -hmm. and there's been, you know, data on both sides saying masks are good, um, or masks could co potentially cause respiratory issues. You know, um, you know, if you're on the more libertarian conservative side, um, basically suggesting that it's a way of uh, asserting control that you're complying with authority or masking your mouth or masking your face. And there is something maybe a bit more sinister afoot 
if it's going to affect uh, both, you know, an individual, both physiologically and psychologically. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of those people are like, we're, we're done with this and we're not, we're, we're not going to, you know, take your prescriptive suggestions, you know, from the left and, and, and there, you know, there've been plenty of marches or protests at state capitals in pretty much every state where, you know, people protested the way that, uh, um, COVID has been handled in general. It certainly happened in Michigan and Minnesota. Right. And, um, so there's, there's this chasm that's, you know, kind of, uh, taken place in that way. Um, and, and, uh, I don't know if that, to me, it doesn't seem like that chasm is going to really end anytime soon. Do you, do you think that there's any chance that, that that something like that will occur, that we'll find that open conversation and reach understanding, or they'll just continue to be, you know, this general um, division and perception and, and view of the whole situation? Oh gosh, I don't know. I don't know anymore. I I don't know how this ends. I, I uh, in an ideal, perfect, utopian world, we would elect Justin Amash president of this great nation, and and all of our problems would be solved. Right. That was sort of tongue in cheek, but yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know exactly. I don't know how this ends. I think things are becoming increasingly tribal and increasingly based on. Um, yeah, tri- I think tribal pretty much sums it up. Um, and and I don't know how you go back from that. I, you know, I, I think I think you just as an individual do the best you can to engage with those that um, fall into the more tribal camp and try to, you know, present um, alternate ideas or at least challenge tribal thinking in a way that is constructive. I don't know. I'm not like I said. I don't know how this. I don't know how this ends. But um, the ideal solution of a non-red or blue Democrat or, or Republican uh, uh, president elected, I think, would be the best route. But again, that's uh, very statistically unlikely. Yeah, and and I think. Uh, you certainly uh, mentioned this uh, on Twitter and other places. And I believe we were talking about this months ago, Um, but the really the true consequences are starting to manifest themselves in a psychological way for a lot of people. Like you, you talk with people and they just, they don't feel the same. You know, some, it might be, milder for some and more severe with others, depending on, you know, how you handle, um, lack of social contact and, and, and routine and being able to do things. But most people that I've talked to are, you know, they're like, how long is this going to last? And really, Mm -hmm. you know, really, it seems to me if, if, if the progressive camp has its way, it's going to be a long time because there's, 
there's modeling and this could happen in the future. That could happen in the future. Um, and you know, and up to this point, I would, you know, it seems to me that these worst case, worst case scenarios have not really come to pass. And the, the worst case scenarios have been actually completely outside of those models and they have been psychological and economic more than anything else. Wouldn't you agree? Yep. I would agree a hundred percent. Um, and I think, you know, I think part of that too, when it comes to, you know, going back to sort of the sort of tribal nature of, of American politics currently is, you know, when you, when things become this sort of tribal, you're, you know, us versus them thing, um, you know, again, the things that suffer are conversation and, and the thing that I think suffers most is nuance, right? Things being, you know, multifaceted or, you know, shades of gray, if you will. Um, and, um, and sorry, I kind of lost my train of thought. Um, you know, I think, how do you, how do you change that? Or how do you, um, how do you, how do you do that? Um, I think is, is, breaking up a little bit. I can't hear you right now. Oh, oh. can you hear me now? Yep, you're back. Oh, okay. Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. I was going to add something and I can't remember what it was. Yeah, it was on the kind of the the tribal psychological implications of the COVID situation. Yeah. Oh, I know what I was going to say. I'm sorry. So, um, yeah. So when you're talking about this sort of tribal or us versus them sort of nature of, of, uh, which I think is, is the case more than ever before. Um, I think, you know, the thing that suffers is, is nuance and is, you know, um, you know, things being multifaceted and things being, um, you know, shades of gray and, and different and varying degrees of truth to different sides and things like that. Um, and I think I think that's one of the real losses of this is that, you know, we're really only focused and zero zeroed in on one thing. And that is, you know, the um, number of cases, the number of deaths of COVID-19, mm-hmm. um, you know, but we're not looking at all these other perspectives of economic or um, psychological health or um, substance abuse or um, domestic abuse, um, et cetera. Right. Like there's a whole, you know, I. I I like to think, you know, there's, you know, I think every single person has more than one priority in their life, right? Um, you know, their health, their family, their job or whatever, right? Like, we don't only have one thing that we prioritize or focus on in life, and that, that should be the same in, in politics, right? You know, there's various considerations that we, you know, uh, give attention to and prioritize. Um, and COVID-19 certainly is a recent one of this year, but it is not the only one and it has not been the only one and it should not be the only one, I guess is my point. Yeah, it's a good point. And I think those are, when it gets right down to it, how it's impacting um, those areas, you really, you just don't see a lot of, just a lot of conversation around that. 
Um, you can, I mean, you, I've seen some, you know, in more libertarian circles, conversations around the psychological impact. And, and it seems like over the last month or so, those stories have become a little bit more pervasive. Not, not, there hasn't been that much, uh, put into that, but the, you know, the overwhelming push has been, you know, let's, let's beat this, figure out ways to beat it. And the opinion or the conclusion that I've come to, and I have a strong feeling is that, um, COVID is not going to be beaten. And, you know, there, you know, there, there may be a vaccine, but it mutates. Um, you know, there may be, you know, individuals that, you know, suffer from it, but they're outliers if they're not healthy. And if I, you know, at this point, if I had to, had to guess, I mean, first of all, a lot of the individuals who are responsible for uh, handling uh, the situation, you know, uh, globally at a, you know, at a nation or at a state level, our history is not going to look back on them very kindly and how, you know, how this was handled. And um, I, I think the way out of this situation is eventually going to be just pervasive, quick testing. And, um, you know, the eventual reality will be most people who, you know, the average age of death of, uh, I think from COVID is around 81. Um, and they're, mm-hmm. uh, they're, the quarantine policies and that type of thing and testing will eventually just lead to older people maybe doing a little bit less, uh, especially those with, you know, predispositions. And that to me makes, you know, logically the, the most sense. Um, but there, Mm -hmm. when that happens, like you said, who knows? And, the ramifications of the way that this has been handled are going to be felt for over, I think upwards of a decade, maybe more economically and psychologically. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a sad situation to look at. uh, And, and, you know, talking about, I think really the, the big thing. And I think the big, one of the biggest things is going to be the psychology of the situation, you know, keeping people from going at each other's throats as more and more people are out of work for longer and longer. Like we've seen in my, my strong feeling has been that um, even the protests that turned aggressive and riots would not have happened if there was no COVID situation. You know, you wouldn't have, a black lives matter movement that was this strong. If there wasn't a COVID situation, um, you wouldn't have a, you know, Antifa or protests and that type of thing. If a lot of these people were working and that that's, that's is 
longer these types of uh, protocols are in place, I think the more um, uh, the more we, prog- we progress, the more we progress down you know that type of path, and that's I don't for me that's very concerning. Um, yeah, I would agree. I would agree generally with that. Um, you know, I think there's, a, you know, not, not to get too in the weeds in terms of the black lives matter, but for me, I'm, that's a movement I'm personally very supportive of, but mm-hmm. not an organization I'm, I'm supportive of. And I think yep. that distinction is important. Yep. Um, but I do think that the, the demonstration, I guess the, po- the point being the demonstrations that we've seen, um, I think there are factions that were part of those demonstrations that were, um, purely the result of um, the prime um, with go to with jobs to go to um, without hobbies, activities, and other um, commitments to go to, if you will. Yep. Yeah, and I think if you're really in any political realm, um, there there are movements that just get co-opted um and you know the political aspect of blm i think has has been pretty well co-opted at this point um but uh in yeah there's the 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 idea of everyone being treated with respect and being able to go about what they want to do without any hindrances you know that's i think that's goes without saying that's kind of what what the country yeah. is predi- what the country is predicated upon you know as much as it could even have been at its founding there were there were just social norms and things that didn't allow it to happen at that point in time but that's always been kind of the point of the united states right that's what the united states is right I mean, this is a country of immigrants they all came from somebody else from somewhere else so um to me the you know the it's it's true and you know some you know some people have you know just by who they're born to have advantages and it doesn't matter what you know in some situations a little bit you know you get a better hand uh, but if you're in the united states you have as good of a shot as any other place in the world of if you even have a little bit worse of a hand of improving your hand if you work hard enough um but uh, things like that, um, and I think a lot of people do understand that, um, I don't know, I, well, maybe not. How many people, because I, I agree with your, your opinion of BLM, agree with the movement, don't agree with really the organization or leadership. Do you think that um, that's a common view of that or not so common? Because I see a lot of people are really into BLM, especially younger, for whatever reason, younger white women. And they're like all in, like yeah. the woke young women are all in on this. Yeah. And I don't think they see it that way, right? Well, so so here's my thought on that is I think, I think there's probably a mixture. I mean, I, I agree completely with completely with your assessment that, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement um, certainly has a 
very large uh, support from from younger uh, Caucasian women for sure. Um, but um, I think I think your average person, and and this is just something I've just sort of witnessed anecdotally firsthand, is that you know I've seen over the course of the summer I've seen Black Lives Matter movement in places where I would not ever really expect to see them. Um, Traverse City, Michigan, which is like a you know resort city, um, Door County, Wisconsin, um, small towns across the Midwest. You know these are places where I wouldn't necessarily expect to see these types of protests. And I think that's new. And I think that, I think that's, um, Oh, I'm getting a poor connection. Um, I hope I'm not cutting out. No, can you, can you hear good. me? Okay. Yep. You still sound good. Oh, okay. Um, I think that's new. Um, but I think if the majority of people, I think if you were to, you know, ask them if they were supportive of black lives matter and they were to say, yes, I think, um, I think the majority of those people, um, you know, their understanding of, you know, Black Lives Matter sort of as a move, social movement and Black Lives Matter as a, you know, you know, as an organization, kind of the distinction of those two things. I would think, I think the overwhelming majority of people, you know, they haven't thought, they, they that's not on their radar. Yeah. Um, I think if you were to explain to them some of the policy positions or, um, <laughs> tactics or things like that from black lives matter, the organization. Um, you know, I think, I think a good portion of people who would consider this, themselves black lives matters, black lives matter supporters, um, would I think find issue with some of those things. Um, so I think, I think the, for the majority of people, I would say it's just something that they haven't considered or they have, you know, they're unaware of So That's would be my guess. That makes sense. Yeah, just kind of, and that's my general thought as well. That I was interested to, um, to kind of get your take on that, see if it was any different. Um, then you have, I mean, there are people that believe um, you can even tie Black Lives Matter or Antifa movements into. I mean, this is get on getting on the conspiratorial realm. Um, but it, it was something that kind of. I, I thought to me at a gut level made a lot of sense. Um, and you're aware that, um, you know, I listened to no agenda respect with Adam, what Adam Curry has to say. Uh, he, he, Joe Rogan had Adam Curry on his first podcast from his, uh, new studio in Austin. They were talking a little bit about this last week, um, where, uh, you have this, what seems to be a, pervasive Chinese input on progressive politics um, and specifically Marxist uh, influence. And, and I, I think that's seriously in play on the Antifa and Black Lives Matter side specifically. Um, my feeling, and, and it might be, that might be more of a fringe feeling is that it's in play on the progressive side as well. Um, that, you know, even this COVID situation, uh, one of the thoughts that Adam had is this COVID situation very well could have been a bio. Well, one of the, the listeners suggested it was a bioengineered virus that had about an 18-month um, lifespan and weakened throughout uh, throughout the time period and was engineered by China 
to sow discord around the world, to cause uh, mm -hmm. economic and social uh, really degradation, if, if not collapse around the world. And while that might seem fringe, you see a lot of that happening. I mean, there's been a lot of economic deceleration. There's been a lot of, um, you know, the civil unrest. Uh, and there are, you know, protests about this increasingly in Europe on both sides. And there are riots that, you know, have popped up around the United States. And they all seem to be somewhat linked to Antifa and Black Lives Matter. And then you have these actors that have these third party opportunists that have joined, you know, joined into the situation. Um, and the, the, the more I've you know, looked and thought about it, um, the more sense it does, you know, even, you know, you can, people definitely have their opinions about Trump. Um, but when he, I, I think when he says, you know, when he references, uh, Corona as the China virus or the, or the Kung flu. Um, I think those are to a certain extent, tongue in cheek comments really, uh, illustrating that he has a certain understanding that that's the situation as well. Um, so, uh, if, if that is the case, um, this could just be a, a first in a line of bio warfare type of act, you know, type of tactics coming from China, uh, which, which would be, that wouldn't be too much fun, but it's not outside of the range of possibility. Um, so kind of, it's kind of my meandering off of the, you know, the co-option of these movements. Um, I, I think there is a, a, there's a lot of China, uh, backing and money, that's that's going in into those efforts really to um, pit people against each other in the exact way that we're talking about, you know, into echo chambers, into boxes, and and to weaken the fabric of um, countries and societies so that China can take advantage of that. Do you think that sounds a little bit conspiratorial, so, Lydia? I mean, these these are all. <laughs> Uh, we've certainly done worse damage on this podcast yeah. in previous episodes. Um, yeah. That's true. <laughs> um, uh, what was I going to say? Well, so I guess my thought on that, I mean, they're all, those are all, you know, ideas that are, are, are familiar to me. Yeah. Um, I don't know to what extent that they're true. Um, but, but if they are true, I guess my thought is, you know, what is the, what is the, um, you know, what is the solution to that? Right. What, what is, how do you, what is the like, um, antidote? Yeah. How do you, how do you combat that? Or yeah, antidote. Thank you. That was the word I was looking for. You know, what's the, you know, how do you combat these things? And, and I, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on that. Cause I, I certainly don't know, um, don't know what they are. You know, the one thing I'll add is, um, you know, I think a part of that is, is encouraging individual agency, you know, among, among individuals and Americans um, in this country. I think, you know, encouraging people to think for themselves, act for themselves um, is, is fundamental to that. Um, just to give kind of a quick, quick example of that, you know, going back to the, um, 
you know, Black Lives Matter movement and things like that. Um, you know, I, I find that both sides, the left and the right, um, when it comes to this issue, it's all it's all grandstanding, right? Um, there's been no legislative action, to my knowledge, um, in response to the issues outlined by Black Lives Matter, either preemptively by the right or, you know, um, or by the left. Um, I guess preemptively, I mean, like as a defense by the right or, or by the left. Mm-hmm. Um, so and, and so that's something that I kind of think of, too, is, you know, these particularly on the left, seeing um, politicians and activists and things saying, you know, we care about this population of people or we care about these issues, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, my my immediate response to that is, so what are you doing to resolve these things, right? Um, what tangible actions are you taking? You know, obviously this isn't a one solution issue, um, but like, you know, I, again, I go back to Justin Amash. I think this ending qualified immunity and, and uh, ensuring the constitutional rights for um for all Americans, regardless of, you know, age, race, et cetera, um, when their rights are violated by law enforcement, I think is, you know, the first tangible step in the right direction that I'm aware of. Um, I wrote my congressmen and senators last week or the week before about this um, to say that I would like to see more urgency on this issue. You know, I have seen certainly plenty of politicians on the left, um, you know, give lip service to these things, but what's the action? Um, The legislation to end this this practice Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Can you not to cut you off, but I'm not intimately clear or clear on that initiative. So when you when you when you talk about that, what is it? What does qualified immunity mean? What what is what is that about? So my understanding of qualified immunity is that it is um, essentially a. Um, I guess privilege, maybe not as is not the exact term, but it's a a practice that gives uh, law enforcement expanded. uh, uh, What's the term? I I should have a better term for this kind of expanded. uh, I don't say domain, but like, you know, uh, leniency in terms of uh, action um, related to to law enforcement in terms of. in terms of their action and what they can be sued for. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're, um, if you're, you know, right, if your um, rights are violated by uh, someone in law enforcement, um, they have a, an expanded range of, um, of, uh, um, uh, let me, let me look this up to give you a better summary because I'm not doing a very good job of explaining this. Okay. And as um, you're looking, as you're looking it up and I did, you, you can continue on mm-hmm. yeah, how you've written let- letters to legislation, or I can kind of mm-hmm. uh, answer your question on what you you know what could be done to potentially combat uh, mm-hmm. the, the situation. And I think really the the first thing that mm-hmm. popped in my mind was pretty much what you what you said, and it was one word: it was liberty. I mean, there the I, I think the liberty movement is an antidote for that is focusing on individual rights, um, digging into, you know, just basically being able to decide if you're comfortable with this situation or not, you should be able to do what you're comfortable with. There should be no mandate. Uh, we've, we've now seen pretty much what the consequences of getting COVID are. Um, and people should be empowered to make their own decisions. 
Um, so uh, really focusing on fundamental uh, rights of liberty would be the antidote because really in you know in my opinion there's a real high likelihood that what we're looking at is the antithesis of liberty it's totalitarian control that's what china is predicated on they don't give a shit about human rights they don't care about what you think they care about what they want they care about their five year plan about building wealth for the you know for the for the politicians who are in power um that's what communism is so and there i think there there's there's that chasm or there's that conflict um going on and i i think that china has a really good chance of winning it and if they do what that means uh is less liberty less individual determination so sticking you know sticking to that making sure people understand that hey and it i think there's going to be a point for a lot of people um where they're like we don't like what's going on it's been a year and a half or two years and we haven't seen a lot of difference well how how can we change it you can you know that the answer to that and i think that's woven in the fabric of, into the fabric of this country is well you should be able to do what you want to do and not you know really what you're mandated to do if there really is no imminent threat so that's kind of that's my thought and my my concern is that through the media which i think is being increasingly controlled by china and progressive uh politics that more and more people are willing to give up their rights and what they don't realize is they may not get some of the rights that they're giving up back so sticking to the you know the ideals of liberty and hopefully allowing the situation to become more and more self-evident to those people who may have been indoctrinated um but are are looking to maybe improve their situation as it's eroded to a certain extent i, I think i think that's mm -hmm. my answer that's what the ultimate antidote to the situation is mm -hmm. yeah so i think we're i think we're on a on a similar page um i think i think um at least for me um I think the next step of, you know, this idea of, of, of individual liberty um, and individual agency and, and et cetera, I think, um, you know, I think what's frustrating for myself particularly is, you know, I think these are, are winning ideas or at least they're a good starting point for, for good conversations. And, you know, I think what's frustrating to me is that the um, sort of movement behind these ideas is so historically underwhelming. Yeah. Um, that's why I get, personally, I get really excited about Justin Amash because I, I don't know of too many politicians that are able to um, present these ideas in a way that is palatable um, to uh, people that aren't already very predisposed to these ideas. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. And he would have been, I think he would have been a really good messenger. Um no one is really paying attention to Joe Jorgensen outside of libertarians. Um, so that really, nobody really paid attention to Gary Johnson. I mean, if you want to talk about at the presidential level, made 
uh, some progress, but um, that's the numbers are small, but throughout history, um, and we've referred to the remnant in the past and, you know, the people who know what's going on are obligated to take action at some point in time. And that's just how it's always been. Most people are not educated on it and they, and if they are, they're not willing to take action. And what that action is, I'm not sure. I mean, we've, we've talked about this on, on, um, uh, you know, individual threads right over the last six six months or so like what are you going to do and i don't know i mean you can you can talk with people um but you know eventually uh you know i've i've kind of said this a few times in the past i think we're at a at a we've entered in a new into a new realm and we're in a in a similar situation as as to what the world was in in the early 1930s when there's a pretty large totalitarian push and there there's going to be i think there's going to be conflict and there's going to be a need to push back against it and really through and it's going to be i think it's going to be somewhat difficult of a of a situation um but you know these types of scenarios they do get worked through and eventually things get better um, but they don't get better unless people, unless good people don't, you know, put, put their best foot forward. And I, and I have absolutely no idea what that's going to look like in this scenario, but I think, um, those people who need to do that, I think they're becoming more self-aware that eventually some type of action is going to have to be taken and that'll be become more clear at some point in time. That's, that's, that's my I guess my vague general thought on it. Do you think that's what happens? Do you think that's what happens, or do you think? And this is something I've sort of been been thinking about lately. Is is do you think that's how things end, or do you think it's that people slowly and incrementally, sort of organically, reclaim the activities that were previously prohibited, and you know, eventually these policies just reveal themselves to be, you know. Um, you know, uh, unnecessary or unwarranted. Because I, I wonder about that, right? I wonder if you can go to their local bar or brewery, you know, for six weeks in a row and they don't get COVID. So now they go to their vacation home and they, you know, go to that brewery there. or the, You know what I mean? Or they, you know, they sort of incrementally expand their, you know, geographic radius, their sort of social activity radius, if you will. Um, and if people just sort of slowly and organically sort of reclaim, you know, their their previous lives. Um, I know I've been I feel like it, I feel like I've been witnessing that to some extent. Um, you know, I'm kind of curious what you think about that. I think that's makes a lot of sense. Um, but there and I don't know how long this will last for, but there's that counter push um, in the, you know, the desire to shame that type of activity. Um, but you know, eventually people just aren't, you know, and they're, they're to a certain extent that's starting to happen now you can go and we've discussed this. You go to outstate areas, like you're going to Wisconsin, right. To watch the Vikings Packers game tomorrow. Um, because you're able to go to a bar there and you're able to, you know, live a bit more free. And if you go into outstate Minnesota, like, 
I'm, you know, I'm from North Cent- originally from North Central Minnesota, uh, up in the Nisswai area. You go there, most people are just they want to do what they want to do, and they they don't like the mandates that are in place. Um, so, will it be, you know, more local? Um, I, I don't know. There, there's been there was an economic commissioner that was just booted in Minnesota uh, by the it was stripped of his duties by the Republicans. Um, on Friday, um, and they're looking to strip more emergency powers from different from different admit, or uh, executive or gubernatorial staff. Um, so you know, at a political level, and then also at a you know more local level, I, I think you're onto something. That makes sense. Um, but there's when when is the when is that the desire to exert control, when does that stop? You know, how does that work? If those people do that, is it going to, are people going to back off or are they going to try and, because you can't really, it doesn't work. I, I don't think to shame people who are of the mindset that they no longer want to abide by these protocols into doing it, right? They're not going to be shamed into doing it, are they? Um, I mean, I, I think particularly, you know, you're you're not going to shame people for doing things they repeatedly, um, you know, are not seeing repercussions or consequences for um, for expanding their daily activities. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's that's kind of the role of I think that's kind of the role of media, right? So you know, that's kind of creates a question of you know how how. How uh, how much stake do people put into you know the media that they consume? I think I think that I'm hopeful that that becomes less. I mean, I don't know to what extent, but you know, I, I really do see at least on a very micro local scale of people you know sort of you know adapting their their daily lives to to look more like they did like they did before, and uh, you know that's sort of been a thought I've had recently of you know does that trend continue and expand and you know, well, like today, actually, I was driving by, uh, I was driving in, in downtown Chanhassen and drove by, you know, kids' soccer games, you know, mm-hmm. um, just a- I cannot hear you. Okay. You're back a little bit now. Okay. Can you can yeah. now. You're back. Yep. Uh, so, kind of going back to the example, I was driving through downtown Chanhassen today, and they had spectators and coaches and kids at a youth sports event. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when does that expand to um, high school sports, to college sports, to professional sports? When is it? You know, we can have parents on the sidelines at youth sports, that so we can have you know a few amount of spectators at high school sports. We can have a few. You know what I mean? Like. You know, is that, does that snowball? I, I'm not quite sure. I think it depends on the location. Right? And yeah. you can even, you guess, can even look at that. Like- you, can, you can look at that at the college level in football. SEC, Big 12, ACC, they're all playing football games. Some, a lot of them have fans in the stands and the NFL two out of the uh, two, two out of this week's two games this week have any fans and it's more conservative 
uh, venues that have those fans. So again, um, you know, Chanhassen's kind of on the precipice. It's a purple slash red city, right? So it's a bit more conservative mm-hmm. um, than, well, I'd say substantially more conservative than if you get in the heart of downtown Minneapolis. And uh, so, I don't know, we could we could just be looking at some dualities that start to develop over the next mm-hmm. year or so where... Uh, and I think, mm-hmm. I think what you're saying makes a heck of a lot of sense. And I haven't really thought about it that much that way, um, where you, you, you see just by sheer, just because of sheer mindset or philosophy, you see areas, even in states, maybe even in progressive states, because you've seen conservative versus progressive states, how they operate, but even in progressive states, like counties or cities, that might operate one way and mm-hmm. others will operate the other way. Cause they're just politically stacked that way. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think we're going to see mm-hmm. a soccer game. Like you saw in Chanhas and attended in the same way, uh, in, uh, you know, Adina or, or Minneapolis or, right. uh, yeah, or right. Bloomington or anytime, anytime right. soon. Um, but you certainly would see that in Waconia or Hutchinson or Marshall, or, you know, mm-hmm. any, any, but, but, but I guess my question being, you know, if these things continue and there's, and, and there's sort of recorded or demonstrated lack of, like I said, lack of consequence or lack of repercussions, you know, you know, when does that kid in Excelsior start asking, well, why can't, why are they playing soccer in Chanhassen, but not in Excelsior? You know what I mean? Like, does, is there a ripple effect? And I don't know. I the don't know. That, but it doesn't it's certainly seem something like I've it. been sort of thinking about. It doesn't seem like it. Like even, you know, if you talk with kids or if you, if you read stories on kids, I mean, there have been examples in the twin cities where kids like at foot or at sporting events or band events where they shame their parents into wearing masks uh, because they're told that way by their, they're told that that's the right thing to do by their teachers and peers, where they, where they talk down to their parents for, for thinking that. So it's almost, it certainly would be, I, you know, very good, but it seems like a lot of these kids, maybe you see it differently go by, well, it's not, doesn't seem like this It's just how kids operate, go by what they're told from authority figures and what their peers think. And the majority of teachers—I don't think that's limited to only kids, right? But, I, but we're I talking think that's about a human thing, right? Yeah. But just just talking about schools and games and these functions and these mm-hmm. types of things. So I, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't, I don't think at the at that level the kids will will change any, anything. It would be the parents, um, and they're heavily influenced by teachers, um, and teachers are hugely progressive um, by and large. So, um, at least, especially, especially in the metro area, um, and, you know, in metropolitan, metropolitan areas in general around the country, that, uh, be, I think a difficult, you know, difficult thing to push mm-hmm. in that direction. At least that's, that's just my gut feeling on that. Yeah. Like I said, I don't, I don't know myself. I just, yeah. you know, I've, I've been kind of thinking about you know, I think social interaction is a, is a basic human need, like many other things. And I think, 
you know, as people organically find solutions to, to meet those needs and sort of expand their, um, like I said, their geographic and social radius to, to do so. Um, you know, I just kind of wonder, you know, one, if that has a ripple effect or, you know, I guess one, if, if those people, you know, fully resume daily lives, if, if they're doing so encourages others to do so, um, you know, those are sort of, I, I, like I said, I don't know the answer to that, but it's, uh, um, something I've been thinking about lately because I've certainly been witnessing it in myself and, and most people I come in contact with. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's very true. And I think it would be nice and we'll see what happens, but from what I've seen is there's like, well, we're this winter, it could get bad. Be prepared. You haven't seen nothing yet. Um, but if that comes and goes and it's not the case, I think it's going to be really difficult to um, stem the tide of people that have the attitude that this is enough is enough. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, if we're in the same situation yeah, yeah, I, I, next March. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. What'd you say? Yeah, if we're in the, I was just saying, if we're in the same situation next March, I think a, a lot of, you know, what you're talking about, I, it might, it, it just might happen because it's just like, what's going on? What are we doing here? Hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, people need to people need to live their lives, and I think you know people are also considerate and kind, generally considerate, kind and, and thoughtful and, and wanting to not, you know, impede or intrude on others, which I think is why most, the majority of people have been, at least at, at the beginning, were, were receptive to and, and open to, you know, these ideas of quarantining or social distancing or minimizing risk for vulnerable people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think kind of on the other hand, um, you know, I think people also, you know, innately have a desire to, to continue and further their lives. I think, you know, broke up a little bit. The connection is breaking. But now, can you hear me now? Yep. Oh, okay. Um, I don't know how much of that you caught, but um, what was I saying? I, I think I think people sort of just inherently have the desire to continue and further their their lives and their you know their their personal and daily lives, and I think people also sort of innately have a desire to be considerate and thoughtful and 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 not impede or intrude on, on others, which is why I think, you know, the majority of people, at least at the beginning of this were, you know, uh, willing to, um, you know, take into consideration vulnerable populations and quarantine and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think, you know, keeping those things in mind, I think people also have a, have an inherent, um, to to continue and, and to live their lives. And I think that, I think that's a factor kind of moving forward as well. Yep. Yeah, I, I would say based based on what we've discussed and that desire and kind of some of the micro and macro trends, 
that there's a good chance come six months from now that type of philosophy will be much uh, more popular than it is now. Um, so that's... I hope so. I hope so. And I, But I, I hope, and, and this is, you know, this is probably a topic for another podcast, but, you know, I think... I don't know. I think if you were to ask the average Donald Trump supporter if rhetoric matters, they would say <laughs> probably fuck no. Um, but uh, I think, you know, I think the delivery and rhetoric and how we talk about these things, you know, I think it matters, too, in terms of, you know, persuading people to these ideas and communicating these things and, um, you know, having this be, a, you know, a, a peaceful um hopefully uh, return to normalcy. Yeah. I don't know if that made sense. No, it makes sense. He's, he's a polarizing guy and that's in a lot of his, you know, people who support him. I think they either like that or they just tolerate it and like, well, that's his personality and it is what it is. And they agree Mm -hmm. with them on the majority or more than the other guy. Right, that that type of mm-hmm. type of thing. So, um, before we wrap up, you were looking into qualified immunity. Did you ever? Did you get a chance to look? At oh that yes, or, sorry. I, yeah, I then we can. Have, yes, I have a more. I have a more coherent uh, definition here for okay. you than than my mumbo jumbo. Yeah, because I just uh, I haven't personally I haven't understood it. So I was. I feel as though my, my understanding when it comes to this is is <laughs> is that I feel like I, I mentally understand it, but but I'm not at the level of able to communicate to others my okay. understanding. That's if that makes fair sense. enough. But here, let me, yeah. let me go with Wikipedia here. Yeah, let me go with Wikipedia here. So, in the United States, qualified immunity is a legal principle that grants government officials performing discretionary functions immunity from civil suit unless the plaintiff shows that the uh, that the official uh, violated clearly established statutory or constitutional rights of which a reasonable person would have known. Um, So essentially uh, granting um, immunity from civil suits um, for, for government officials um, unless there's, you know, uh, unless that official has violated a clearly established, um, or uh, clearly established uh, right that the, the a reasonable per- reasonable person would have known. Um, so I, I will will be very transparent in that I don't know a tremendous amount about the history of this uh, um, policy. Mm-hmm. Um, but but my my understanding is that this is you know I think an avenue to. Um, provide some form of, of justice for, for individuals of all backgrounds that have, um, you know, been on the receiving end of, of injustice by, by government officials and law enforcement, because this is another thing, you know, that I've, I've, uh, there's a journalist that I really like, um, named Jane, Jane Poston, who, uh, who talks about this issue of, uh, police brutality and things as being a, a bipartisan 50 state issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I, I think, I think, from my perspective, I think this is a, a tangible action or a tangible first step to, you know, uh, improve or resolve some of these um, um, issues to, related to 
um, injustices at the hands of, of government officials or law enforcement. So it protects, because the way I followed that, and I don't think I followed it correctly, it protects the rights mm-hmm. of the individual, let's say, if somebody's being arrested, to not be harmed. Because the way that mm-hmm. I interpreted it, and I think I just interpreted it completely cor- incorrectly, is that it, it, it protects mm-hmm. the rights of the officer arresting that person. And that's, that's not accurate, right? So it protects the rights of the yeah of the officer arresting that person. So it, um, it protects okay. their uh, or it gives it gives um, so it gives um, immunity to that um, officer have civil suit um, made against them. Yes. Okay, so it does. So to me, mm-hmm. um, so that I didn't understand that before, and that helps helps out. So to me. What I don't quite understand is how it protects someone, you know, if they were harmed, or they shouldn't have been harmed uh, in such a way, because it seems like qualified immunity allows, because the way I've thought about a lot of, a lot of the situations, a lot of the BLM stuff is Mm -hmm. you go into these areas, South Minneapolis, for example, and some of the other areas where there have been killings at the hands of police officers um, is that Mm -hmm. you have all kinds of dynamics. Like I've talked to people about the third precinct in Minneapolis, uh, people who have uh, family who are police officers in the area in St. Paul, Minneapolis. Like from what I was told is that the, uh, the rougher areas oftentimes are where the, where the, are the landing grounds of the, the newest police officers. So they have to do stints in tougher areas like South Minneapolis or East St. Paul in this area would be a little bit different in whatever city you're talking about. And you do your mm-hmm. time and then you move on to a different precinct. Um, so that happens. So you have, oftentimes you have newer officers there and then you have the ones who don't move on. And the reason why they don't move on is because they typically don't graduate out of there. So you have, and and I, this is just what I've been told. I could be completely off on this, but this is just the way that I've understood it is that you have, uh, um, uh, this combination of people who don't move out of these precincts, these that are in the tougher neighborhoods and they're, they're like, aggressive by their nature because they're dealing. I mean, when you're in a tougher part of town, you have more crime. The type of person that you deal with is typically more belligerent. Like if you or I were to get arrested, we would get in the car, right? That would be it. Right. Depends on the day, but sure. Yeah. You probably (laughs) wouldn't resist too much. Be like, okay, you know, this is happening moving forward, but we're with a lot of people that <clears throat> these officers deal with are, this may not be their first rodeo. Um, they might be lippy. They might be aggressive. They might, you know, it's a hard, harder, it's just harder to, to get on with the situation. And some of them are aggressive and you don't know what's going to happen. And so as a result, mm-hmm. you're more aggressive than, and, 
South Minneapolis than if you would be in like where we're at Chanhassen or Minnetonka. Um, it's just the way it is. So you have a population that's more aggressive. You have police officers who have to be more aggressive to do their job. They could get hurt. I mean, it's a dangerous job. They don't know, you know, what's going on. So what, if I'm understanding this correctly, what qualified immunity does is it protects these officers for, you know, uh, from getting prosecuted uh, for uh, what would otherwise be criminal offenses because of the environment that they're essentially doing their job within. Is that accurate? Would that be accurate? I haven't heard, I haven't heard it put that way. Um, okay. That's an interesting way of um, assessing that. I, I don't know. I haven't heard I haven't heard it put that way. I'm looking at an article here okay. um, uh, from Lawfare blog. Yeah. Um, what is qualified immunity and what does it have to do with police reform? Which yeah. seems to be um, a pretty thorough um, sort of uh, an, a, a description, I guess of of this policy and its history and, and um, some of the arguments for and against it. But um, I I don't know. I, I I view it as, I view it as a um, unequal, um, uh, an unequal protection of the law, if that makes sense. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, I, I, I don't, uh, to me, you know, certainly I, I understand kind of that perspective that you, that you painted of, you know, if you're uh, working in an area of um, a more challenging, you know, you have more challenging encounters as an officer and things like that. Um, you know, Before I can understand, killings understand have taken place that too. circumstances. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. But but right, but there's constitutionally de- de- you know protected rights of people, yeah. um, which are not conditional on the environment of, of where they're arrested. Right. You know what I mean? But there's gray. I mean, there's not black and white. There's right. fog of war, gray situations, which I don't think have, and that's outside of I, I guess qualified immunity. But those haven't been discussed as much because if we're talking about qualified immunity, that certainly could be even in play when you're talking about George Floyd. And the police officers that were involved at that, because if they're going to have their rights protected in that such in that way, that would even make it more difficult to get any type of prosecution to stick against them. I think, if right. I'm following correctly. Right. Mm-hmm. right. That's yeah. That's that's my understanding. Okay. That makes makes more sense, actually. It didn't make sense to me at all before, so it, it, it makes a bit more sense. Um, we're a little bit over the hour that we're going for, so um, unless you have anything else you'd like to like to discuss, I think kind of the consensus. I think we generally um, have seen the COVID situation develop in a similar way, and there's all kinds of reasons why it could happen, but. I think the consensus is um, you know, people doing what they think is right going forward. And that should take care of a lot of, you know, a lot of the uh, byproducts or symptoms of the crisis. Right. Yeah, I think so. 
Um, I think people, like I said, I think people need to regain their own sense of, of agency and assessing their own risk. Sovereignty. And, um, Kirk would say. Sovereignty, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, sorry, Kirk, that you couldn't join us, but we'll throw in a sovereignty for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, I think there's a component of that. I think there's a, you know, a component of just kind of, you know, the passage of time and, and how that impacts things. And um, I guess, I guess for me, I, uh, the place in time that I'm at right now, it's trying to remain hopeful, hopeful and optimistic. Um, these things um, and trying to stay as, you know, stable and, uh, um, um, you know, non-tribal and, and nuanced and, and open-minded and, and respectful and, um, you know, effective in communicating these ideas that we've talked about, um, you know, because it certainly can be challenging and, you know, frustrating, at least for myself, in terms of um, sort of the rhetoric and um, uh, framing of, of, of topics and issues, um, you know, which is a result of politics and the media and a variety of other things. No, I think I think it's important just to understand and communicate uh, thoughts about the situation, and um, if you can conceptualize that there there are probably a lot of things being done that aren't correct, and if you have a you know open mind, you're able to critically think, and you're able to. You know, even on a, it all starts, you know, with you and on a local level to impart, you know, some of your thoughts in a positive, a constructive way. And if you have more than a few people doing that, there can be significant change. And that's all you really can do is focus on what you can impact um, with yourself and with your friends and family. And if that if that equates into local pockets of uh, sensible behavior, then so be it, because uh, ultimately, in the end, it's about being happy with your situation and, uh, you know, being able to function in a healthy way. Uh, so I think a lot, of, a lot of what we've discussed can certainly help in that regard. Um, so with, <laughs> go ahead. Oh, I was just agreeing. Yep. Uh, so with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up. This has been... Liberty Southwest podcast number 64. Adios, apologies to, apologies to everyone tuning in that was looking for a little bit more of the Kirk spice. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We'll we're, that, we're just a little more vanilla without the pettis. <laughs> that is true. So I'll, I'll do another adios. We'll go double, no, double entendre right. with the adios. That's <laughs> Here we go. So signing off. Adios, <laughs> mofo.